Hey everyone, and welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven. That is my lovely book-loving wife. As always, Liberty. We're a married couple with different hobbies, and we try to force each other into our interests by discussing the latest news in both books and sports. And I'm realizing now, I don't think I said that for the sports episode. You definitely did not, but the... Whoops! To consider, it wasn't very good news information in sports to try to push you towards sports this week, because no. it was like COVID I was judging and, everyone. COVID and other things, so like, uh, yeah. hopefully there's less of that in the book episode. I don't think I mentioned COVID at all, but... Fantastic. I do mention Ted Cruz, so... And Andrew Cuomo. Mm-hmm. Kind of checking two other weird boxes I don't think off. that's going to force you into the book world. No, especially Ted Cruz, Mr. I take vacations while everybody's freezing to death in his own state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This will be our final episode of this year. We'll be back in the new year so we can keep discussing Cytonic and then Evershore, and then we'll have our season break. So we'll be back after our week off. Before we get to that lovely break, however, we have to discuss the latest news in the book world. And like I said, and you said, Andrew Cuomo is at the top of our news for the week. Which, I think he was at the top of pretty much everybody's news over the last couple weeks. So yes. like, But he's been ordered to return millions of dollars in book proceeds from a memoir that was published while he was governor of New York by a state's ethics panel, which I'd never heard of before. But members of a joint commission on public ethics voted 12 to 1 for a resolution giving Cuomo 30 days to return the money over to the New York State Attorney General. Cuomo's office said in May of 2021 that his earnings from the book were expected to be about $5.1 million. So that's a lot of money to give back. It's not clear if the ethics committee expected the book proceeds to land in state coffers or be returned to the book's publisher, which is Penguin Random House. One of Cuomo's attorneys, Jim McGuire, said Cuomo will challenge the decision because, of course, he is. It's literally $5 million on the line. They're saying that most likely this will lead to a long legal battle. And the reason they're saying this is because there's been no real precedence for something like this. So... The decision has to be made and can't rely on precedent. And I'll jump over the middle section that I wrote for the news and go straight into Ted Cruz. We'll keep the bad rolling. So we can end on a little better note. Ted Cruz has a new ebook on critical race theory, which argues that seeking equity in the U.S. is really calling for, quote, discrimination against white people. He's one of those. No one is surprised. He says that critical race theory concepts have, quote, infiltrated our education system. He is said to look out for buzzwords like white privilege, systematic racism, and equity, which is a word that can be applied to pretty much anything and not just race. But critical race theory is the study of racial bias in the U.S. and specifically laws within the U.S., Cruz argues that the concepts have infiltrated the education system, like I said before, despite the fact that educators have been saying that critical race theory isn't taught in K through 12 schools. So I don't know where it infiltrated the education system, but not K through 12. Which is literally almost all the school age for most people. And in the 10-page ebook, Cruz says, Together, I think we can defeat critical race theory in our schools and make sure that students learn the true history of America, the story of American greatness. F you so f- mm. Isn't Isn't the idea of critical race theory to teach people the darker sides of 
like American history, like right. properly educate that... people on the things that we did that were wrong and good. It's not to take away the good. It's to just make sure you understand both. The way that America got to where it was when it was at the height of its like world power was on the backs of other people. And that needs to be discussed. Right. Him saying that we need to tell the true history of America. Yeah, we do. All and it. it's not about white American greatness or whatever the hell you're trying to discuss. The irony of this is he, he goes by Ted Cruz, but his actual name is Raphael Edward Cruz. So it's like, you well, are... Well, it's not white enough. Clearly. And, and it's like, dude, you're of Hispanic descent. Of all the people that should understand what happened in the United States, y'all should too. Like, the Americans abused the crap out of the Mexican people and the Spanish people that were in the country at the time. And it's a repeating thing that happens within U.S. history. It's not a one-time thing that happened. It's continually within the U.S. using and abusing people of color in order for the, quote, American greatness or whatever. Yeah. And so, like... I think the United States as a country has to come to terms with its actual history instead of like this preached history. Yeah. And I think that's going to be one of the major differences between the U.S. and like Germany, who has a very dark history as well because Hitler. But like... They don't forget it. They don't forget it. And they don't just try to sweep it under the rug and act like the thing never happened. Right. And that's going to be the real difference between the two countries. Moving forward. Yeah. Just to wrap up that part about Ted Cruz's book. I think it's funny. It's called a book. It's 10 pages. It's a freaking PDF. (laughs) It's an email. Right. A long one. (laughs) Anyone trying to download the quote book must provide their email address and will be met with a request for donations. Go figure. mm, Sounds about right for a politician. But the one like shiny, not political book news for the week is that a rare copy of a Superman number one comic book, which originally sold on newsstands for 10 cents in 1939, was purchased in an auction for $2.6 million. I would say best investment of that person's life, but the person that bought it probably is dead. So like, or had sold it already or something. Yeah. Yeah. The comic was sold on Thursday, December 16th to an anonymous buyer, according to comic connection which is an online auction and consignment company. That's pretty intense. Yeah. But because this is our final recording or final episode for 2021, I did want to discuss the January new releases to look out for, particularly mostly ones that I'm excited for because I'm here. So hello. The first one is Serendipity, which has been edited by Marissa Meyer. It releases on January 4th, and I know that I've already discussed this because I had an arc of this one and rated it 3.5 stars, which is a pretty good rating for an anthology because it's 10 different writing styles, and not everyone's going to like everything. But this is a YA romance anthology from 10 of the most well-loved YA contemporary authors, including Marissa Meyer, Anna Marie Mecklemore, Julie Murphy, And with each story, they take a romance trope and then base a story around that trope. So there's fake dating, there's only one bed, the makeover, like a bunch of different tropes. Right. And it was a little weird reading this because the title of one of the stories is my name. So when I was just opening the 
ebook for the first time and I saw that listed, I was like, what? Why? I remember Where? you talking about this on the podcast. But overall, it was really good for an anthology. 3.5 is a great anthology rating from my experience reading anthologies. That's good. The next one coming out on January 4th is When You Get the Chance by Emma Lord. It's a YA contemporary slash romance. In this one, we follow Millie, who is being raised by her single father, and she wants to become a Broadway star. And nothing and no one will get in her way, even if that means having to hunt down her mother, who has just sort of walked away from their family. And I like Emma Lord. I think I've read both of the books she's come out with already, so I wouldn't be surprised if I enjoyed this as well. One that you might read eventually is also coming out on January 4th, and it's Where the Drowned Girls Go by Seanan McGuire. It is book number seven in the Wayward Children series. I called it an adult fantasy, and I don't know, because it kind of straddles a line. So I think it's an adult fantasy, but I've heard it discussed as like upper YA. Okay. But this novella takes a turn from the rest in the series in that instead of following one of the girls from Eleanor West's home for Wayward Children, we follow children at Whitethorn Institute. It's a different school for children who fall through doors and fall back out again. Basically, this is the one for the people who hated it, where they went, never want to go back, and like how to adjust to going back to the real world now that they've had this experience. Got it. That makes sense. I'm just excited to continue this series, to be completely honest, because we read book one, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to have to either start picking them up, or if you already have some of them, start reading them. I only have book one. I only ever read book one. I'm really interested in the main character in that one's, like, portal fantasy side of her story. And I don't know that that's ever going to happen. And so that's part of the reason I've never continued. Because each of the book follows one girl specifically. And every other one is told from the, basically, the moment they go into the portal fantasy for the first time. As far as my understanding on this series goes. Like I said, I've only read the one. Yeah. This next one, I have heard no one talking about, but I saw the cover for this on like a rabbit hole of exploring other people who run book blogs, and now I want it. <laughs> so also coming out on January 4th is The Helheim Princess by Tiana Warner. It's book number one in the Helheim Prophecy series. I'm going to show you the cover, and you can tell me whether or not this seems like something I would want. Oh, absolutely. That's, like, right up your alley. Yes. Yeah. So this is a YA, like, fantasy slash mythology, because it seems to be going down Norse mythologies route, but there's also fantasy. Yeah. The synopsis for this one on Goodreads says, For as long as Sigrid could remember, she's wanted to become a fearless Valkyrie. But without a winged mare, she's stuck as a stable hand, left wondering who her parents were and why she is so different. Technically, the Goodreads says more than that, but I think it gives away too much of the plot. Well, we don't like doing that here, so... Coming out on January 11th is Weather Girl by Rachel Lynn Solomon. It's an adult romance novel about a TV meteorologist and a sports reporter who scheme to reunite their divorced bosses with, quote, Unforecasted results. Cheesy. That's, I was going to say, it's cheesy as hell. Yeah. It's, it kind of feels kind of like a parent trap type situation, like just with adults. Boss trap. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A little bit. <laughs> also coming out on January 11th is Hope Punk 
by Preston Norton. This one is a hard-hitting YA contemporary novel. Growing up in a conservative Christian household isn't easy for rock-obsessed Hope Cassidy, but it's even worse for her sister Faith, who gets kicked out of her house as soon as her parents find out about her relationship with record shop cashier Mavis. We see Hope struggle once Faith is kicked out of the house with what is right and what is wrong. And the last one that I'm excited for for January comes out on January 18th. And I've technically already read it because I got an arc of it through Neck Alley and ended up rating it 3.75 stars, which is really good for a romance. So just keep my scale in mind. Anything above a three for a romance is good by your standards. Yes. So the fact that you're really close to a four is like impressive. Yeah. This one is How to Love Your Neighbor by Sophie Sullivan. It's an adult romance novel, basically about a girl moving into a house she received when her grandparents passed away and the real estate developer next door who wants to buy her house, but she wants to fix it up and live in it. She's currently on the path to finish her degree, get her dream job, and fix up the little house on the beach. And it's all very sweet what she wants to do, and he kind of lives in this different sort of reality where... He's got a lot of money, his family comes from wealth, and his world just runs at a faster pace than hers. Got it. And so when they meet, he tries to buy her house from her at double market value so that he can expand the property for himself, and that does not go over well with her at all. And it says that it's an enemies to lovers, but I don't think they ever cross the line into being enemies which is what I prefer with that kind of trope because I'd rather it be dislike to love than enemy to love because there's just not enough pages for it to make sense and to work out well. Yeah, because when you're at enemies level, it's just like not... It's going to take a lot more to get you to fall in love with them, I feel. One would hope so. If you completely hate them. Right. But that actually leads really well into what I've been reading because that is the first book that I finished this past week. So... Rated it 3.75 stars. Really enjoyed this one. This is really cute, especially if you like like home remodeling because you do get a few scenes of them working on their individual houses to fix them up the way they want them. But also like if you like the beach vibes because they are in a beach town in California. If you like puppies because she also walks puppies in her free time. So a lot of cute stuff in there. And then I randomly picked up In Love and Pajamas, or Pajamas. Depending on your, whether you're a tomato or a tomato person? Yes. Got it. By Katana Chetwind, I think is how you say her last name. I think that's a great name, by the way. Like Katana? K- Katana. Not Chetwind. Well, it's not awful. Yeah. We could name our next pet Katana. I don't know that our current pet would appreciate <laughs> a next pet in- But this is a new release from February of this year, technically. It's just a four to five panel comic on each page. And I feel like people know this cartoonist work. Like, they've seen it around on the internet. It's really cute, coupley comics. And they discuss, like, moments in their relationship between her and her fiancé, possibly her husband now. I don't know if they've gotten married since this came out. At times, they can be, like, hyper-specific moments, but also there are some, like, broader moments that all couples really can understand and relate to. Yeah. Overall, I rated this five stars, so. It's it's cute and funny, and, like, you asked me to show you the ones that I thought were like us, because I read this as well this week. I shoved it in your face, basically. 
well, it was present, and I finished my reading very early because, A, you've been having me read novellas that were more than 200 pages for, like, two weeks in a row. So, like, reading 100 and something pages for what I had to read was Cakewalk. Yeah. I literally finished Wednesday morning, so it's just, like, it wasn't that hard for me to do. Yeah. But... It was fun. It was a fun read. I don't know that I'd give it a five just because it's not my style of comic, but I would probably give it like a solid four two five, four five, I feel like. It was yeah. it was enjoyable. Also, this one comes with stickers, so I could put them on things. I would hope you don't because stickers just devalue things everywhere you put them. I'm gonna put it on you. Would you be devalued at that point? I guess. It's a little depressing. I don't think you would be. Okay. And then I also read The Righteous by Renee Audier. This one's a new release from this month. It's a YA fantasy novel slash historical fiction, kind of. It's book number three in the series, and I rated it 3.5 stars. So slightly less than the first two. I think at this point, I can't see where the author is going with this one. And I think book four could rewrite my ratings for books one through three. As long as it goes somewhere really good. Because at this point, I can't see where it's going. Which is a good and bad thing. Because, like, obviously you want to be hooked. Well, but, like, I feel like things are coming from... Left field? Left field. And, like, it's okay to not know where a book is going. But to be thrown by pretty much every plot point is kind of off-putting. Yeah, there has to be some kind of intrigue involved with it, I feel like. That you're just at least kind of... Baited into reading the next one. Mm -hmm. And this one, we did get a different point of view because we followed Pippa instead of following Celine and Bastion, which I actually enjoyed Pippa and Arjun Desai more than I enjoyed Celine and Bastion. Honestly, Celine at this point is just pissing me off. Yeah. Because she is acting so naive. Because she wants to maintain a relationship with her mother, who she has never had a relationship with in her entire life and recently found in the previous book. And so she's so desperate for that relationship that she's willing to ignore very obvious signs and red flags and just act completely naive. And it's like, you're in the world of the Fae and they are very deceptive and you're just going to ignore everything because you want this relationship. Right. And it just makes me angry. I can imagine. But I'll read the synopsis from Goodreads so I don't give away too much more than I already did. Pippa Montrose is tired of losing everything she loves. When her best friend Celine disappears under mysterious circumstances, Pippa resolves to find her, even if the journey takes her into the dangerous world of the Fae, where she might find more than she bargained for in the charismatic Arjun Desai. Sounds good. Yeah, but I rated it 3.5 because, like, You didn't know what was going to happen next. I mean, I feel like if book number four goes well above and beyond the other three books, it could up the rating of the first three books as long as everything comes together in a way that makes sense to what already happened with the plot. Gotcha. So we'll see. As for what I plan on reading next, this will probably be the last time I mention this book or this series on the podcast. And if I ever choose to reread the series, I'm just not going to bring it up. But I'm going to finish my reread of Harry Potter and read the last book this next week. As well, I'm going to read a children's book that I picked up at a library sale. Geez, when did we go to that library sale? This summer? Uh, yeah, it was a little while ago. It was the one in Arlington, right? So yeah. it's probably been about like two or three months ago. 
And this one is called On Christmas Eve. It was written by Anne M. Martin and Catherine Martin. And the illustration was done by John J. Muth. It's a backlist book from 2006. It is a children's holiday novella. In this one, eight-year-old Tess is convinced that this is going to be the year that she finally meets Santa. Tess's faith in the season results in a Christmas Eve so wonderful that readers can't help but get into the Christmas spirit, too. That's good. And I plan on reading this on Christmas Eve. Oh, okay. Because it's called On Christmas Eve. Yeah. So, I'm that person. Hello. I, I'm married to you, so I know pretty well that that's who you are. And we are taking a week off after that. So I plan on trying to get to Evershore when that comes out. I plan on reading a few comics and whatever I'm really in the mood for. It's only a week and part of that time we won't be here. So we'll see. There may be more and we'll surprise you with it when we come back. Yes. But going into the main thing that you read over the past week, you read the first third-ish of Cytonic by Brandon Sanderson. Yes, I did indeed. And it was strange. It was just weird. Like it, like I understand where a lot of the lines were connected and I, I'm glad they did that. Like as an author, he connected the dots to a lot of the novellas, which yep. was important. Like, you know, where Jurgen is just randomly flying in a straight line because all of a sudden... She appears behind him. So, like, I'm glad they connected those dots because I was like, why would he just... All right, we're not doing anything to avoid death. (laughs) You're finally seeing a lot of the connections tying back. Obviously, we haven't gotten to the ones that would be really related to the second novella yet. But I would assume they're coming. As time goes on, yeah. Um, Since I'm only a third of the way through the book, like, it makes sense that I haven't gotten to all of those yet. I think... At this point, you can tell why I felt the way that I did about, like, this going in a different direction than I expected. Because when we ended book two, we saw Spencer go into that, like, portal The nowhere portal. Into the nowhere. And then all of a sudden, you're not just in the, like, vacuum of space or whatever. And so it, it goes in a weird direction that I wasn't expecting. Yeah, definitely was strange. I, I'm not bothered by it. Like, I feel like it's still sci-fi-y enough to keep me going. Like, yeah. for obvious reasons, it checks a lot of those boxes still. You just get into, like, this alternate universe style thing, and sometimes that can throw people, I feel like. But, again, it's technically not an alternate universe. Like, it's well, just... Well, it's just, like, a portal that is, once you go in, you really don't get out. Yeah, I would call it more of, like, a parallel. Like, it, it's running at the same time as... The rest of what you normally saw, it's just somewhere where it doesn't quite, like, you can't just communicate to the outside world so easily. And it's really more along the lines of, like, our understanding of the nowhere prior to this book was very insignificant. We did not know enough about the nowhere to really be able to comprehend that this was, like, an option. Right. But they start the prologue with... Spencer back in the room getting ready to go through the portal into the nowhere, which is where we left off in book two. And when she gets there at first, like, it's... Very hostile. Yeah. Like, the Delvers are pretty pissed off, and then... Because she has sort of manipulated one of them. Into being, like, this peaceful sissy sack, basically. Well, to 
understanding that humans aren't just noise. Like, humans are also beings with feelings and everything else. Right. And so all the other ones are very mad at her for doing this. And basically, the Delver that she's... Converted? Maybe that's the way to say that. Basically tells her to go on the path of the elders and not get lost so that she can eventually find her way out and find her way to discovering before she leaves what she is and how her powers work and develop them better. Right. So the other Delver is basically trying to be helpful since she was helpful to the Delver and making the Delver understand things. Yes. And before she decides to go on this path, she sends Doomslug home. Hopefully. And we still don't know. I'll find out how to get home when I get to the end of this. Yeah. So, and she ends up dropping outside of a wall at that point. And basically she's got Imbot in the little drone body herself. And then she has no idea where she is now. Yeah. However, Mbot is still really pissed off and just ditches her basically in this forest, which is great. And pretty much immediately there are people there trying to like grab her up. And steal her dad's pin, all that kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah. At the same time, you've got Imbot being all angry, and it seems like he's able to process things faster in the nowhere. Right. Which makes sense because he uses a cytonic information drive, so, like, that does explain some things. And, like, she gets caught up by these bad dudes and is basically dependent on Mbot to try to save her, more or less, even while he's doing that, he's still kind of being the sarcastic, angry Mbot that he was before. Yes. She feels another Cytonic in the area, like, close by. And so they're communicating Cytonically, and she's like, I don't know where I am, I'm in a jungle. And she doesn't know if she can trust that voice. For obvious reasons, she's in a new, very threatening environment, so... And basically, she's being informed that this is a place for exiles. They're pushed through this portal, and basically, it's like a prison for these people because they can't leave. They have no way out of here. I think the one portal that is used both ways is controlled by the superiority who come in and out in order to mine the acclivity stone for their planes. Yeah, because they have figured out a way to... Manipulate how this all works. Yeah. She does also meet different kinds of alien species, and so that was a lot of fun to see. Yeah, you definitely see some newer types of people around, and then you kind of start off this adventure of trying to flee from, like, I don't know, like they described it as like a giant dinosaur anteater thing. Yeah. Which was super intense because the dude she was talking to does come to her aid and tries to save her. Yes. And then things go even crazier after that because it turned around and was, like, losing its mind. Yeah. But that also does help her get away from the gang of people who are trying to Well, yeah, they didn't want to fight the anteater dinosaur thing. Like, I couldn't fathom that would be an enjoyable experience. As well, you learn that it feeds off of energy weapons. So, like, when they're shooting lasers at it, it's just like... Nom, 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 nom. Basically, like, tasty, thank you. Yeah. You only make me stronger, not weaker. And at the same time, she's discovering that weird things are happening to only certain people. And it seems like it's possibly controlled by the Delvers. 
Yeah, well, they're having, like, flashes of white in their eyes, which is synonymous with them, it seems, so. Yeah, and it looks like their faces are melting and, like, all of this weird stuff is going on with the ones who are being controlled by yeah, the Delvers. Yeah, the things of nightmares, really, let's call it what it is. It really is. Yeah. I think roughly that's when you find out about what that pin is for Spencer in this world because the way time works and the way that memory works in this place, it's very easy for you to get your past just completely erased and like forget who you are, forget your history. And having some sort of token like her father's pin helps her remember who she is. And we learned that tokens like this leave memory ashes that you could absorb in order to maintain your memory or remember things you've previously forgotten. You also see, or you find out that, like, there's a reason some of the people that are in there are staying in, like, these larger groups because it also helps them retain memory that way as well. Right, right. And not lose themselves. Right. And, of course, there are funny moments with Mbot. Like, there's a moment when they're running away and the guy who's come to save her, basically, that she was communicating with is running ahead of her and Mbot's hovering alongside her saying... I think I'm simulating fear. And then he's like, it's time to stop talking like that. I feel afraid. I am afraid. And like continually developing his ability to simulate emotions or feel emotions. Right. As the novel goes on, which leads to some very funny Mbot conversations. Well, when are Mbot conversations not at least a tad bit funny? Yeah. Also, there's a moment when Mbot's talking about the people who had written his programming and said that they smell like cheese and have noodles for brains. And Spencer's just like, what? He explained that when he had to copy his personality into the drone, he had to delete a bunch of stuff. And one of the things is the way his to... collection of keen, brilliant insults Yeah, is what he calls it, that he had to get rid of. And Spencer said, you never had one of those. He said, Really? Well, I guess I'll have to start one. And so as the novel goes on, one of the running themes is him coming up with different insults for different people. That are just horrible most of the time. Noted, Noodle Brain. Yeah. Inbot and Spencer acquaint themselves with Chet now that they're out of that dangerous situation and learn that he's an explorer here in the nowhere on the outer reaches of the nowhere. And you also kind of learn a big thing more or less off the bat, that they think that he might have been Mbot's old pilot, possibly. But for a guy that's pretty negative about AI, like, it's kind of a shocker that that's who it would be, but... But having spent so much time in the nowhere, it would make sense to then be afraid of AI again. Yeah. Especially given how close they are to the Delvers being in the nowhere. Right. But they agree to team up to go on this mission, to go on the path of the Elders. Yeah. And they have to travel on these fragments that are, like... Floating small continents, more or less? Basically. That's a decent way to explain it. Though some are bigger than others, and they have different types of... Ecosystems. And, like, there are mountains on this one, but this one's a desert, and this one's an ocean, and stuff like that. This one's a waterfall, that kind of stuff, yeah. And while they're having to travel on these different continents or fragments... And they are going through all these different kinds of wilderness and having to, like, fashion different things to use to travel and things like that. Chet is showing a decent amount of ability to navigate these places. Right. And 
So it really does seem like... It's a good partnership. He's a good person to partner with because he can help her on what she's doing. He also knows a lot of the like layout of this world or whatever you want to call it. And how to get from more or less one fragment to the next fragment to the next fragment. So, And part of that is his cytonic ability. And part of that is just how long he's been here. They think that it's been about two centuries, but they can't say for sure because time in the nowhere is really weird. Yeah, because you don't age. You don't have to eat at a certain point or drink water. Yeah. Which is super weird. It really is. Yeah. And at first, Spencer still doesn't really trust him and has Inbot like, watch over them over the night to make sure he doesn't steal Spencer's reality icon. Partially because he's staring at it in this, like, really insane way, like, absolutely obsessed with it. But also partially because their deal is he gets paid some of these reality ashes, whatever they're called. Yeah. For every day that he helps her with her mission. Then we have an interlude where... During the night, that first night when she's sleeping, she, like, cytonically travels. So she's not actually there physically, but, like, mentally she's traveled. And it's in the middle of that battle scene with Jorgen where he's, uh... It seems like he's out of it for a minute for some reason. Yeah. And it turns out it's because Spencer showed up and... He could see her in the background of his, uh, cockpit. Yeah. As a reflection. And she's shouting at him that he needs to fly because he's in the middle of a firefight. Yeah. Idiot. Like, you're about to die, dummy. Get to it. And he was like, it's a little distracting when my girlfriend just randomly shows up. Randomly appears out of thin air. Yeah. They do sort of just give each other quick rundowns of information at this meeting of what's going on with them, where they are. And he basically says that he trusts her, and if this is something she feels she needs to do and stay, then she should do it. She should do it. Yeah. If it's for the better of everyone, even if it is a risk, it still is a good risk to take. Yeah. She ends up accidentally overhearing a conversation between Winsick, Braid, and the Delvers. Technically, Winsick can't really communicate with the Delvers, so he has to communicate via Braid. Yeah. And that conversation is basically Winsick promising that if the Delvers help him, he will eliminate all the noises that are basically the one true thing that the Delvers can't stand. It's fair. It's definitely an interesting trade proposal, but like it makes sense for the Delvers. Like it's like yeah. if we could have it quiet in the galaxy, that would be great. And then Spencer finally actually goes to sleep after that. I would imagine out of pure exhaustion at that point because her mm. body hasn't adapted to everything yet. Well, on top of that, you're spending all your time using your cytonic abilities instead of sleeping. Right. But she wakes up and Inbot's like, nothing happened the entire night. You're welcome. I'm going to go look for mushrooms now. Mm-hmm. And we see Spencer enjoying the traveling from fragment to fragment and it being kind of similar to the stuff she was doing at home before she got into flight school. And so she's really connecting with Chet and they're swapping stories because it seems to her that she and Chet are both better at remembering stories than facts about their own life as they continue on to travel together. And they're considering that just kind of like a side effect of being in the nowhere. And that is roughly when they see a bunch of starships in the sky. And she's like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. And it turns out that the different sort of, not gangs, I don't know what you would call them. Kingpin? I don't know. That would be like a leader of the gang. Yeah. 
Well, you have these different territories. So when they're traveling between the Cannonade territory and the Broadsider territory, they discover the Broadsiders flying overhead, whatever you want to call them. And there was a quick firefight in the territory that they were traveling in. It doesn't seem like anyone's really getting shot down or killed or anything like that. They're just sort of stopping. Yeah, more or less. It was, I think, more of just a, hey, we're we're more powerful over here. Why are you trying to follow us? Yeah. I technically think they're called factions of people. That's fair. That's, technically a, that's called. a fair term to use. And as we continue to see Chet and Spencer travel together, Spencer starts feeling the effects of the nowhere, so she's not tired, even though they've traveled in deserts and oceans and things like that. We also get to kind of explore Chet's brain about the different realities of the Delvers and the Nowhere. And specifically, he explains that the Delvers aren't a group mind, but they are all separate beings, but also identical. So they're a bunch of separate things, but they're all the same separate thing, kind of. And they live in a place where nothing ever changes and time doesn't exist. So having interruptions with like communications just pisses them off. Because it's changing things. And they're terrified of anything that isn't exactly the same as they are. Yeah. And if you change anything, then they absolutely hate that. Hence why they're all really pissed off at her. Yeah. Chet is worried about the way that people use cytonic abilities in order to travel through the nowhere because it's of his opinion that traveling through the nowhere changes it, which is how you have so many different fragments with different ecosystems and different terrains yeah and things like that right they also discuss what's going on with the superiority within the nowhere because they have built a quarry for the acclivity stone and discuss how it's basically a giant plant with a lot of people working it and that sort of thing they also discuss how the fragments that they're traveling on are made of acclivity stone. That's why they're all like these floating continents or whatever. Right. And some of them have more acclivity stone than others, depending on how they're floating, how large they are, that kind of stuff. Right, right. They also discuss different stories that they've heard. And at one point, the different heroes of stories. And Spencer might have gotten the wrong idea about a certain story because she's discussing heroes like Odysseus or Hercules or Satan. And Chet's like, what? He's a what now? So that was kind of funny. It's like, he's, he's not a hero at all. Not even sort of kind of. But think- the way that it's explained is kind of funny. And that whole scene... Of him having to be like, no, Adam and Eve were supposed to be the good guys in the story. Right. And she's like, those losers? My sense of humor. I love it. Yeah, 100% your sense of humor. I remember reading that and going, yeah, Liberty would like that. Mm-hmm. Spenza has Imbot watch them overnight to make sure nothing happens again. And when she wakes up in the morning, nothing has happened. So she's starting to trust Chet more, I think. And this is when they discover the first ruin or portal and they realize that the writing on the wall is actually like cytonic memories rather than it being just hieroglyph type messages. Right. Which was pretty key. It opened a lot of things for her power wise as well as her grasp on like the history of cytonics as a whole. Right, right. Is this also the moment where we see how the nowhere sort of developed? Yeah, it kind of like comes through a pinhole and then it just grows as yeah. it comes in. Yeah. But like. The way it gives her her cytonic abilities a boost is more like 
something being injected versus something being learned sort of thing, in my opinion. Yeah, I can kind of see how it's that way because when she starts like grasping and understanding the things that is kind of forced upon her by the memories that she's kind of already activated as a cytonic person. So that makes sense. And they're also having a discussion here about, well, if the somewhere can leak into the nowhere and create these fragments, is there a way for the nowhere to leak into the somewhere? And what would that look like? And they both realized that it would look like cytonics. Yeah. And that's really where they came from. And basically she explained it as interdimensional radiation that infuses people with the nowhere versus being a solid thing. Right. And you kind of see the Delvers like first big attack on them by like ramming one of the segments or fragments into another one. Yeah. Causing it to split down the middle. And it's a very much like a action-y scene where it's like jump for the survival Right, right. Yeah. And doesn't she have to use her light lance or something in order to get to the other side? To swing to the other side. Yeah. Yeah. And they end up having to go hide after they make it safely over because there are some people of different factions who are coming to explore the collision between two fragments because it's... despite the fact that there's a bunch of fragments floating around in space, they don't ever really collide. Yeah, so they're confused as to what the heck was going on. We also see that Imbot gets really sad because Chet doesn't really like him. In fact, Chet seems to hate him. And if he's technically his original pilot, like, that's not the relationship he remembered for obvious reasons, but... I mean, it would make sense that he would be afraid of AI and therefore afraid of Imbot and not like him, but at the same time, Imbot's been spending all this time considering what Commander Spears would have been like, and he's like, this isn't what I would have wanted my pilot to be like. Right. And they have conversations about his emotions and his sapience or whatever. Right. And there's another moment with the glowing eyes and the Delvers trying to scare her. More or less just trying to, like, get at her in a way that will either impede her ability to go further or scare her to the point where she just doesn't want to go any further forward. So Mm -hmm. it's definitely interesting seeing the Delvers utilize living creatures inside the nowhere. Yeah. And then we see that Chet has to plan out a route to continue taking them to the next little cave or whatever to... Fragment to the next fragment to the next fragment for the next cave of uh, the trip. They end up fashioning a raft and this like sea creature gets fished and then tied to the raft to pull them along. More or less, yes. And they're harmful to people because that's not what they eat, so... Yeah. Right before your stopping point, there was another interlude... And we see Spencer visit Jorgen in a bathroom because he's back at home. Kind of a weird scene. Um, He was in the middle of shaving when she showed up. She forced him to stop shaving, but he was still already like half shaven already. Mm -hmm. So she made fun of him for a little bit about that. And then they start passing actual information that's useful back to one another instead of just gooing and gawing over each other like they did the first time they ran into one another. So, And then you see her kind of feel like she's finally closer to him a little bit. Yeah. Well, like, they've barely, like, been together, and most of that time, except for one kiss, they've been away from each other. So there's, like, long-distance dating via cytonic ability. I was going to say, like, galaxy-based long-distance dating. But she shares all of her information. He explains what's been happening, and we know what's been happening because of the two novellas. It's definitely not anything pretty, that's for sure. 
there's some flirting and some stuff back and forth. I'm just trying to make sure I'm not missing any major information in the interlude. Is she trying to eavesdrop between Braid and Winsick again after that? Yeah, she does, and then Braid basically pops in and starts trying to tell her off. So mm-hmm. it's definitely an interesting like set of scenes in the interlude. Like I, I'm over the moon to try to pick this back up and keep going. So like, because it's just now starting to get more exciting and more adventurous. I feel like because they're gonna try to do some things that should be fun to read about here momentarily. So. It's definitely different than I anticipated for book number three. I still think that the novellas are going to end up being my favorite parts of this series, but we'll see because you have two more thirds to read and then the novella and then book four comes out in 2023. I didn't know there was a book four. I thought this was the wrap up. Oh no. Oh no. The way that one ends. uh -uh. That's good to know. Yeah. Though I think book number four is the last one. Okay, so I guess we'll be waiting for that. But you'll be reading the biggest section you have to read of Cytonic over the next week slash our break. During arguably one of the busiest weeks of my life, so. But you have an extra week, because we won't be back until January. It's true, but we're going to enjoy our holiday break. We hope you guys enjoy your holiday time with your family and friends. And And not getting COVID. And please do it safely, is what I was going to say. Uh, It seems like that needs to be said more often than not now. Yep. Make sure you guys check out all of our social media. We'll have it linked in the show notes. And make sure you remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And we will see you when we're back from our little vacation times. Bye, guys. Bye. There's a very sheep kitty in the kitty tower. Sorry. (coughs) You made me breathe while I was swallowing. You're welcome. (coughs) She is pretty darn cute. I'm not a fish, I realized. Yes. Eat you. Like a ham sandwich. I'm going to eat you up. Now that I'm done eating a cat as a ham sandwich, back to this regularly recorded broadcast.